Welcome to episode 64 of the Truth Quest podcast, the truth about the federal income tax and the 16th Amendment. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on social media and topics such as the federal income tax, the wealth tax, gold and sound money, the idea of a social credit score, or red flag laws comes up, please share the topic-specific TruthQuest episode with your debate partner. If you're listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a moment and scroll down on the podcast page and give it a five-star rating. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest podcast patronage page. See the episode show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com. The easiest way to stay up to date on the podcast is to subscribe to it on iTunes or Google Play Music. It's also available on Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean. And the video version of the podcast are available on YouTube, bitshoot.com, and brighton.com. Finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. What would you say if I told you the federal income tax is unconstitutional? The fact is, most Americans today give very little thought to the idea of the federal income tax other than to complain about them when they see their pay stubs. Let's be honest, the confiscation is largely hidden through payroll withholdings, so people don't even think about it. The feds were smart enough to implement the withholdings because they knew if the American people had to cut checks to the IRS every week, month, or quarter for their income taxes, there would be a revolt. Anyway, it's back to my original contention about the constitutionality of the federal income tax. Most of you would probably say something like, what the hell are you talking about? A constitutional amendment was passed on that, specifically to allow for the federal income tax. Well, in this episode, I'm going to offer you a perspective that you've likely never heard before and examine the truth about the federal income tax and the 16th Amendment to the Constitution. So, of course, let's start at the beginning, the Constitution. Let's look and see what the Constitution says about the federal government's ability to tax generally and its ability to tax your income specifically. The Constitution creates two types of taxes, direct taxes and indirect taxes. We're going to start with direct taxes. So let's start with Article 1 of the Constitution, which is really a discussion about the House of Representatives. But the idea of direct taxes is thrown in. Article 1, Section 2 reads, Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states. And then it goes on to talk about other things about the House of Representatives. But the main thing is I want you to remember that word apportioned. Then in Article 1, Section 8, it lays out in very clear language the taxing power of the federal government. It says, The Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. But all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. So I need to point out a couple things to you. Did you notice that the word taxes is excluded from the second part of that clause? Remember, it said, the Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises. And then it says, but all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform. So why is that? Because taxes, i.e. direct taxes, were already addressed in Article 1, Section 2 that I just read to you, which is where that strange word apportion comes in. So we're going to get on, we're going to talk more about that in a minute. The key to Article 1, Section 8 is that all indirect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises are to be uniform. And we're going to tackle that in just a second. Then, just one section later in Article 1, Section 9, we get some more commentary on this 
direct tax thing. It says, quote, No capitation or direct tax shall be laid unless in proportion to the census or enumeration herein before directed to be taken. End quote. So this is a key concept of this whole episode. So pay close attention. Direct taxes or capitation in the 18th century vernacular is defined as a direct or uniform tax imposed on each person. Other definitions back then meant a tax on all persons for just being a person. That is, the person has engaged in no commercial or financial activity, but he still has to pay a tax. So let's recap what we know. We know that direct taxes, such as an income tax, are constitutional. Yes, I said constitutional. As long as they are apportioned. So when you read the words of the Founding Fathers, they made it crystal clear that direct taxes were never to be mainstream, only in times of dire need like a war. They used words like evil to describe the direct tax. The apportionment provision was there to protect us from this perceived evil, to make it very difficult. It's another one of those brilliant checks and balances that they created. See, what is supposed to happen is the federal government is supposed to say, hey, states, we need $100 billion. And then each state is responsible for their proportion based on population. So if California has 10% of the country's population, then they send the feds 10% of that $100 billion. If you think about this in the context of the Constitution, which is essentially a contract between the states and this newly created federal government, if you were to put it in modern terms, it would say something like, we the states willingly give up some very limited power to this federal government in return for a list of things like military, defense, postal roads, managing patents and trademarks, and federal courts. Part of that contract includes the state's agreement to pay their part of any direct tax assessed by Congress. Of course, Congress is comprised of representatives from the states, so it's likely they would not be screwed over by their own representatives. Anyway, the income tax is classified as a direct tax because you are essentially writing a check directly to the government. A direct tax is levied upon people and personal property. Another way of looking at a direct tax is you cannot avoid it, like you can the in, an indirect tax. And because you cannot avoid these taxes, it makes them subject to abuse, which is why the Constitution put the apportionment restriction on them. Another reason the founders included the, this apportionment provision in, on direct taxes was to preclude the states from over-reporting their populations in order to get more members in Congress. If they did, then they would be subject to more apportioned direct taxes. The first direct tax was assessed in, on July 14, 1798. $2 million was to be raised. New Hampshire was apportioned $77,000, New York $182,000, Massachusetts $264,000, etc. So it was all based on population. Fifteen years later, in 1813, as a result of the debt accumulated in the War of 1812, Congress levied a tax of $3 million. Again, in 1815, a direct tax of $6 million was assessed, and then it took all the way to 1861, where $20 million was assessed for the Civil War. This was the first income tax, and it resulted in the creation of the income tax return. The tax was cast as an indirect tax, despite the fact that it was obviously a direct tax. It stood for over 10 years when in 1872 it was repealed, but the table had been set for more abuse to come. The other type of tax mentioned in the Constitution is known as an indirect tax. Remember Article 1, Section 8, all duties, imposts, and excises shall be uniform throughout the United States. Well, those are what are known as indirect taxes. Think tariffs or sales taxes. It's essentially a tax on consumption. 
The Constitution's only requirement on indirect taxes is that they be uniform. Everyone pays the same amount if they consume or buy the taxed item. A 10% cigarette tax must be the same in every state. Consider the gas tax today. The feds take, what, 53 cents a gallon, no matter what state you live in, and then the state takes their cut, and every state's different. These types of taxes are less dangerous than direct taxes because they're self-correcting, which means if you raise the rate too high, people will avoid buying the product or they'll find it on the black market and avoid the tax altogether. Another way of putting this is, while a direct tax is on the taxpayer's revenue, an income tax is on his expenses. It's important for you to understand that throughout the first 200 years of the country's existence, we survived off of tariffs and excise taxes, with the few exceptions I mentioned earlier. But living within our means was too much to ask our federal overlords in D.C. It was only a matter of time before the greed and power made a rude appearance. When Congress did pass an unapportioned income tax in 1894, the Supreme Court struck it down. In Pollock v. Farmers Loan and Trust Company, 1895, the court found the law unconstitutional because it was levied as a direct tax on property without apportionment. It's important for you to understand that this case was never reversed, only ignored. And law schools actually teach that this opinion was overturned by the 16th Amendment. But as we will discuss shortly, it's not that cut and dry. So in comes the 16th Amendment to save the day and allow the feds to tax income, a tax that Murray Rothbard called undoubtedly the most totalitarian of all taxes. The 16th Amendment was implemented in 1913 after the final required state ratified it. It states, The Congress shall have the power to lay and collect taxes on incomes from whatever source derived without apportionment among the several states and without regard to any census or enumeration. So you can see what they thought they were doing here. Because the taxing clause of the Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, did not mention income, the Congress shall have the power to lay taxes, duties, imposts, and excises. They added taxes on quote-unquote incomes to the 16th Amendment. And they specifically state from whatever source derived. And they withdrew the requirement to apportion the tax. They appear to have overridden the three main requirements for a direct tax which is fine. At least they went through the amendment process. Modern-day Democrats just run to the courts to do their bidding instead of actually going through the rigorous process of convincing the American people to ratify a constitutional amendment. Think about Obamacare, the Department of Education, abortion, welfare programs, student loans, labor laws, infrastructure spending. The list goes on and on. None of these things are constitutional, yet they seem to be the law of the land. Think about Elizabeth Warren and the Democrats and how they're selling that wealth tax that I, I mentioned in episode 63. The income tax and the 16th Amendment were sold to the American people as only a tax on the rich. And on top of that, they were told that the tariffs would be decreased as well, which would essentially mean a tax cut for everyone by way of cheaper goods. Today, the income tax impacts virtually everyone with the exception of full-time students. When you get right down to it, the Constitution stood in the way of progressives who wanted more revenue. They had to deal with this pesky little word apportionment, so they passed the 16th Amendment. The amendment was followed up with the 17th Amendment as a way of the progressives to get around that pesky clause in the Constitution about senators being appointed by state legislatures. But at least the progressives went through the trouble of passing and ratifying amendments to the Constitution. Since then, we have been ruled by a judicial oligarchy that makes shit up on a regular basis. 
So, we're left with the elephant in the room. Why is the federal income taxes levied unconstitutional? Well, much of what I'm going to present here comes from Irvin Schiff's book, The Great Income Tax Hoax. Schiff is probably most well-known for his stance as a tax protester. Matter of fact, he died in federal prison in 2015 while serving a 12-year sentence for filing a false tax return. Irvin is the father of Peter Schiff, who produces one of my favorite podcasts, The Peter Schiff Show. I highly recommend it. Between his father's book and listening to countless episodes of Peter's show, where he articulates many of his father's arguments, I will do my best to make Irvin's arguments. Schiff's most compelling argument against the constitutionality of the federal income tax, despite the 16th Amendment, is twofold. First, it's a definitional issue, and second, it's application. So he argues that the definition of income is not wages, and the application or the way the federal income tax is levied is not in compliance with the 16th Amendment. So let's dive in and see if Schiff's arguments hold water. Let's start with the 16th Amendment. Schiff argues that it does not necessarily amend the Constitution because Congress never defined the word income. His evidence is pretty hard to refute. All you have to do is read the transcripts of the congressional debate over the wording of the amendment. If you do, you will see them referring to income as profits or gains, not wages. As Schiff put it, quote, If Congress could not figure out what income was, how could they write legislation to tax it and how can anyone else figure out what it is, end quote. Three years after the ratification of the 16th Amendment, the Supreme Court heard the case of Bruchaber v. Union Pacific. In this case, the court found that the income tax, based on the 16th Amendment, constitutional. They explicitly stated that in upholding the income tax, it was, quote, not repudiating or challenging the rulings of the Pollock case, end quote. However, and that's a big however, they found that the manner in which the feds levied the income tax was not in compliance with the Pollock case. That's what I mean by the application of the law. As a matter of fact, they found that it was actually contrary to that opinion. The opinion essentially found that the 16th Amendment did not overturn or change anything about the Pollock decision because the court argued that the 16th Amendment gave the government the right to tax income without apportionment if it was imposed as an excise tax. So it must actually be levied as such. It cannot be one in name only. Therefore, if an income tax is levied as a direct tax, it does not fall within the 16th Amendment, and it's illegal because there's no apportionment. The way they arrived at that opinion was to argue that the tax levied directly on the source of income is a direct tax on the source itself. For example, a tax on rental income is a tax on real estate, the source. A tax on dividends is a tax on stocks, the source. A tax on wages is a tax on labor, the source. So all of these taxes are essentially a property tax. Property being real estate, stocks, and labor. And keep in mind, all of these taxes are inescapable. So by definition, they're direct taxes. You can't avoid these taxes like you can an indirect tax. And it is paid directly to the government. That's the very definition of a direct tax. In order to impose the income tax as an indirect tax and therefore avoid apportionment, income had to be separated from its source. So in another Supreme Court case in 1919, Eisner v. McCober, the court defined income as, quote, gain derived from capital 
from labor or from both combined, provided it be understood to include profit gained through sale or conversion of capital assets. This definition is ignored by taxpayers, the IRS, and the federal government. Those key words in there were derived from and profit gained. Part of the application argument I'm making with the federal income tax is the concept of voluntary compliance. So understand that the IRS claims that filing a tax return is voluntary. You swear under penalty of perjury that you have had income and therefore owe an income tax. We are quote-unquote self-assessing our taxes due. However, oddly enough, if you don't file a tax return, you can be fined or sent to jail like Irvin Schiff was. And if you misstate something on the return, it can be used against you in a court of law. Filing your income taxes, filling out all those forms and giving the IRS all of that data is a violation of the First and the Ninth Amendment. Then when the IRS comes knocking based on the information you gave them voluntarily and they start demanding to go through your records, they are violating the Fourth Amendment, remember, papers and effects, and your Fifth Amendment protection of being a witness against yourself is being violated as well. Schiff put it this way, quote, if the government's ability to collect a tax collides with the constitutional right, then the method of collecting the tax must yield, not the constitutional right. The Constitution says that I cannot be compelled to be a witness against myself. Now, if the government is going to maintain that the Internal Revenue Code can compel me to be a witness against myself under the threat of prosecution, then the Internal Revenue Code is unconstitutional. The Constitution takes precedent. So how do we get here? Well, Congress, with the help of the Supreme Court, in their typical precedent out of thin air, tried to get around the Pollock case by taxing the privilege to do something and measuring it by the value of your property, i.e. the gift and estate tax, the privilege to hand over to someone else, or the privilege to earn income, or the privilege of doing business in a corporate capacity to get at profits. All of this in an effort to avoid a constitutional requirement that direct taxes must be apportioned. The federal government, through these direct taxes, via various privileges, has essentially said, we are granting you privileges in which to pay a privilege tax for the privilege of bequeathing your assets, earn a living, or earn profits. It's as if private ownership has been abolished. But don't worry. The overlords in D.C. allow us so many privileges. Aren't they generous? It's more like tyrannical. The argument against the constitutionality of the income tax goes something like this. Since the courts have ruled that income must be separated from its sources, it should now be clear that private individuals cannot have income because it's impossible for individuals to separate personal income from its sources. And since the courts have ruled that income is defined by profits or gains, the earnings of an individual cannot be regarded as income because individuals don't prepare profit and loss statements. Individuals exchange their labor, that's their asset, for dollars. That's not a profit, and it's not a gain. Irvin Schiff said this, Quote, the gain derived from labor must be given the same meaning as the gain derived from capital and cannot be viewed differently. Income attributed to labor is in every instance a gain derived from labor, which is obviously not the same thing as the mere exchange of one's labor for a comparable amount of goods and services. So let me make that more clear. In order for income to be taxed as an excise tax, an indirect tax, and therefore avoid apportionment, the income must be separated from its source. This only occurs in corporate profit and loss statements, 
where all the earnings is offset by all the expenses, and the net profit or gain is considered quote-unquote income. But individuals don't file profit and loss statements. Therefore, they don't have income to, as defined by the court. If the IRS was following the 16th Amendment, individuals would be required to list their earnings and all the expenses they incurred in order to keep their asset themselves up and running and available to earn. Rent, food, clothing, electricity, transportation, healthcare expenses, education, etc. But no, the IRS rules manual is thousands of pages long and so complex that you need a computer program like TurboTax or a professional accountant just to wade through it. Think about it this way. If a business sells a product for $1,000, they do not report income of $1,000. They run the income derived by the sale through their P&L. When an individual earns $1,000, the IRS, under penalty of jail, requires you to report that as income and pay the government directly. That's the very definition of a direct tax. So to answer my original question, how do we get here? The federal government has changed the definition of income from profits or gains to simply wages. Now, you got to keep in mind, the IRS code has never been changed to reflect this definition because it would be easily exposed as a direct tax and therefore subject to apportionment and found unconstitutional. And then what? All wage earners would stop paying federal income taxes or they start producing individual profit and loss statements just like corporations. Schiff summarizes the argument like this, quote, Sources of income are not taxable. Only income is taxable. And the government has yet to tell us what income is. On a side note, I want you to consider yet another example of how everything the federal government touches grows into a bureaucratic leviathan. Consider this. The income tax rate in the Revenue Act of 1913 signed by Woodrow Wilson was 1% on income over $3,000. And the top rate was 7%. The tax form was two pages, and get this, the entire tax code was some 400 pages. Today the rates range from 15% to 39%, and maybe even higher. And the tax code is over 70,000 pages, as politicians have spent decades tinkering with it to benefit their various constituents, lobbyists, bureaucrats, and interest groups, picking winners and losers. Taxing income is basically a fine paid for the crime of being useful and productive to society. The revenue generated by taxing the useful and productive has enabled the modern welfare state. There was an explosion of redistributive spending after the passage of the income tax. If you look at a chart of federal spending as a percentage of GDP, it essentially stayed at 5% until 1921, just a few short years after the passage of the 16th Amendment. The only exceptions were during the War of 1812 when it jumped to 20% of GDP. During the Civil War, it was 30%, and during World War I, it hit 22%. It then crept up above 10% by 1943 and skyrocketed to 40% during World War II, only to settle back down around 12% after the war. Then it started a steady climb ever since and is now around 25%. This is the reason to oppose all federal taxes whether it's an energy tax, a wealth tax, or a financial transaction tax. We are not dealing with honest brokers here. Giving Washington politicians a new source of revenue is like giving alcoholics the key to the liquor store. All of this leads me to wonder what would happen if a few honest congressmen took up Erwin Schiff's plight and questioned the federal income tax and its application per the 16th Amendment. 
At least the Federal Reserve had a congressional nemesis in former congressman and presidential nominee Ron Paul. The income tax has none. I want to leave you with some food for thought. First, the only federal crimes listed in the Constitution are counterfeiting, treason, piracy, and felonies committed on the high seas. Tax evasion, embezzlement, extortion, computer crimes, gun crimes, kidnapping, hate crimes, and federal drug crimes require a constitutional amendment in order to declare them as such. You may be thinking, that's crazy. You can't have bad guys running around kidnapping, selling drugs, hacking computer systems, and perpetrating extortion on the American people. You would be right to react that way. However, short of the appropriate constitutional amendments, it's the states that should be prosecuting these people, for whatever it is, as long as the crimes fall within the limitations of that particular state's constitution. I don't understand why everything has to be a literal federal crime. And secondly, I want to leave you with some words from Irvin Schiff that sums up this whole dilemma nicely. Quote, Since an income tax does not fall into either of the two classes of taxes provided in the Constitution, the government cannot legally assess such an illegal tax. Therefore, individuals have to be conned into assessing themselves because the government has no constitutional authority to do so. And suppose an individual or corporation refuses to assess itself, which is what landed Schiff in jail to begin with. In that case, the government has no statutory authority to assess any income tax, and by law, no income tax can possibly be due. End quote. So I know a lot of this, of what I've presented here, is counterintuitive. Everyone alive today, man, we don't know any better. The federal income tax has been enforced for over 100 years. But just because something is, doesn't mean it's right, moral, constitutional, or legal. And given the willful negligent behavior by our elected officials over the last 10 decades, it would behoove us to make some effort to return the country to its constitutional republic that our founding fathers gave us one where the federal government sits in its narrowly defined box and wields very little power. Please feel free to bring your questions or comments about this or any other TruthQuest podcast episode over to Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast.